0: Welcome to another episode of the History of California podcast. It's been a while since we've had an episode. Um, I've kind of been going back and forth about uh, the direction of the podcast, uh, how much time I have to, to devote to it, and I put out an, an episode most recently where I asked for uh, some some support from listeners to, as both, you know, help to pay for... Uh, some of the costs of producing this podcast, but also just really to see if uh, if people were valuing this and if this was something that uh, they wanted to continue. Because I definitely get a lot of value out of it, um, and so a couple people uh, stepped up and uh, pledged financial contributions that are going to allow me to. At um, at bare minimum pay for the hosting of this podcast and uh i really appreciate that and i i know the rest of the people that will be listening to this podcast appreciate that too um secondly um i i just wanted to make a few comments because there were some feedback about some previous episodes um where i mistranslated some spanish um i i do need to be a little more careful with my uh language translation my spanish is uh, rudimentary at best and um uh, In the future, I'll be more careful about uh, translation. Um, But more broadly, I just want to say to listeners is that uh, this podcast is designed to be a survey, um, a general overview of topics. It's not designed to be a a detailed, uh, well-researched historical account like you'd find in a textbook or you'd find in um, a you know, a peer-reviewed article. Uh, While I do do fairly extensive research for these podcasts, um, I'm looking more for breadth here than depth. Uh, This is supposed to inspire listeners to pursue more research on their own um, and investigate for themselves. Um, And ultimately, I I can only dig so deep with such a large topic to cover. So uh, hopefully that addresses concerns of people. Uh, This podcast is for the general listener, uh, not the specialist. Uh, But hopefully the specialist can find uh, connection points, uh, because I do feel that one of the strengths of this podcast is that I can draw connections to different domains, um, different disciplines, that add uh, some different flavors to a historical record that maybe a traditional historian wouldn't wouldn't use or wouldn't approach. So um, I really appreciate all the listeners, um, and I am excited to continue this podcast. And uh, to, today, in this episode, we will be uh, continuing our story of Uniparosera. So let's go ahead and start. There's an interesting subset of Christians called Pentecostals. Uh, They're most known for things like speaking in tongues and believing in the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, After my time in seminary, I had a nine-month, I would say, unsuccessful stint uh, working in an Assemblies of God church, which is kind of a version of a Pentecostal church. A lot of the things I assumed about Pentecostals were confirmed. I heard the tongues... I saw some of the running around, and there was a lot of talk of uh, power and miracles. To an outsider like myself, it all seemed quite strange, uh, but nonetheless interesting. And if you look at the passage in the Bible where the word uh, Pentecost comes from, it seems to relate to giving the tongues as a a form of languages, um, meaning that tongues were giving people the power to speak different languages. Um, But I will say it is fairly contentious what these tongues are and whether they refer to a specific divine language or just the spoken languages of other people groups. Nonetheless, this takes place at the beginning of Acts, a book that, uh, of which the central theme is the spreading out into the world of the Christian ministry. Which makes it all the more poetic that Junipero Serra established his first mission, uh, expanding what he saw as God's mission. On the day of Pentecost, uh, paralleling the book of Acts. Now, I'm referring specifically to his first mission in uh, Alta, California. I just He had worked to establish previous missions, but uh, the one in San Diego was the first one that is venturing out into the state that is the subject of this podcast. But it also would be fatefully ironic, given the difficulties and the lack of understanding and communication specifically that would lead to many of the challenges that the native people and the Spanish would encounter um, as they began to uh, mingle around these missions in Alta, California. So let's jump into the mission in San Diego. Uh, The mission in San Diego is the first of uh, Sarah's Alta, California missions. If you remember from previous episodes, uh, Unipuro was part of a mission led by a man named Portola, um, and the first part of the mission was to establish um, a mission in San Diego, but also, um, secondly, to establish one in Monterey. Uh, not long after arriving, Portola began to prepare to head north to Monterey to fulfill the second part of his quest. Um, and the plan was to leave a small group of people behind in San Diego. The camp included a motley crew of characters. Eight Spanish soldiers provided protection. Another 14 there were, were there, but they were mostly ill from the journey. And then there was Sarah and two other priests. And finally, a group of uh, eight natives that were transported from Baja to Alta California. To say that the time in San Diego was a mess would be uh, an understatement. Communication was the best uh, made through a crude form of sign language. While Sarah felt like he made a breakthrough when the natives brought a child to the mission uh, to be baptized, there were many hostile interactions that followed. As this is going on, uh, Sarah's community is slowly running out of supplies and are eagerly awaiting a supply ship that was promised uh, after Portola left. Eventually, that ship did arrive, either coincidentally or uh, causally, depending on your religious point of view, after a nine-day period of prayer which is actually an interesting thing when you read older texts, particularly when reading religious texts. Um, And this is something that a lot of modern secular people don't know. God is uh, a huge character that kind of sits above everything pulling strings. Uh, When we see the word providence being used, often in historical documents, uh, with our empirical eyes, we just kind of skip over it like it's a kind of like a quaint uh, thing that people said in old times. But uh, for them, the main character in in most of these stories is God, and God is guiding everything that is happening. Narratives are crafted with God's mission in mind, and everything points that way, and it is the guiding force. Now, God will be replaced later by progress, love, and other invisible forces guiding stories, but uh, the original footprint was made long ago, and we've been filling it with other forces uh, ever since. Uh, So, um, in... The storyteller's eyes, uh, God responded to their nine days of prayer, and that's what they believed. Now, when the boat arrived, Sarah gladly jumped uh, aboard and continued up to Monterey, leaving the other two priests in charge. When they arrived, they established uh, in Monterey, they established uh, the Presidio and the mission. Now, when I hear the word Presidio, I think of that uh, big, beautiful park in San Francisco, uh, Chrissy Field with all the dogs uh, and watching sailboats and then that beautiful drive to Golden Gate Bridge. Now, historically, a presidio has very little to do with yuppies flying kites, tossing footballs, and throwing frisbees to their golden retrievers. Uh, these were mainly uh, military outposts uh, placed along routes that miners and settlers would travel to protect them from attacks from native people. Uh, most places included both a mission and a presidio. As, and as conquests expanded, the military would typically withdraw troops Um, from these areas, and the church's power and control would expand. Um, And the separation between what was classified as a mission and a presidio would blend together and include all the things that uh, the presidio uh, provided while there were soldiers there. Um, And the the reason simply is that uh, even though the military was leaving to do something else, uh, the mission still needed some of the things that the military provided, so they began to provide that themselves. And in that sense, the clergy had to create kind of an economic system uh, that would replace what was left. Now, returning to Monterey, not long after arriving, uh, Sarah baptized uh, his first person. This person being baptized was five years old and likely neither understood what was happening nor spoke Spanish. Most of the people that Sarah would baptize in Monterey were juveniles. The oldest apparently was 11 The idea is that a younger child is, when they are brought into the fold, the easier it is to adapt them to the Spanish ways. The goal of this program was to baptize them early and teach them the Spanish language, and in some ways utilize them as ambassadors uh, between uh, the native communities and the Spanish missionaries. It is also true that the native people saw this relationship in the inverse, They saw it as an opportunity to use their children's newfound knowledge of the Spanish language as an opportunity to enhance the trading relationship with the Spanish. These people had experience with trading relationships before and saw this as an opportunity. And this leads us, at this point, to consider an interesting perspective uh, about how we see history. I remember in my college history classes, um, Native people were often presented as passive victims of imperialism. And in many ways, this narrative is true, and the horrors enacted by European colonizers is, is in my mind, one of the bigger stains on the history of the Americas, and specifically the landmass where most of my listeners are in the United States. However, there is a danger in this narrative, and it's a trap that uh, progressive-minded people fall into all the time. Uh, When the focus of a narrative is exclusively on the story of victimization, uh, agency is the first thing that goes out the door. An example that comes to mind was the discourse uh, in the state of Israel uh, around uh, the Holocaust. Um, so this is 1950s. In that time period, in the 1950s, uh, the focus became around how to conceptualize uh, the Holocaust. And there was a lot of emphasis and people that wanted to push Uh, to focus on stories of rebellion and resistance by Jewish people. Um, As they were creating the state of Israel, they viewed focusing exclusively on the victimization narrative um, as a a disempowering narrative. Um, And that narrative would disempower the people of Israel to defend themselves in their uh, dangerous corner of the world. Again, this is not to say that one narrative is right or wrong. Rather, both narratives have their place. Um, the idea of just a single narrative reminds me of this a beautiful TED Talk uh, called "The Danger of the Single Story," uh, about how many pro- how many problems of the world uh, are related to the fact that we only tell one story. The story of Sarah takes a turn here when he runs into some conflict uh, with a military leader who's. A uh, name I'm just going to guess at is Phages. Um, Fahis, uh who would eventually turn over, uh, take over from uh, Portola. Uh, I'm choosing to gloss over the infighting between uh, Sarah and Fahis, uh because it does not advance the task of these podcasts, which is really to explore and look at the mission system and Sarah's legacy. Uh, the crux of the issue, as I see it, is uh, control and vision. Even though theoretically these two groups working together uh, was an arm of, these two groups working together was really an arm of Spanish exploration, Um, their goals weren't always in alignment. Um, But probably more accurately, uh, there were many large egos at work here. And uh, naturally, when there's multiple egos uh, of that size uh, remaking the world around them, they're naturally going to run into conflict. Um, so now let's return to Monterey. Sarah had accomplished a lot in the six years of his tenure as effectively the president of the Alta California missions. He had established five missions along the coast of California. Uh, he had overcome many obstacles, both internally and externally, and was wanting to continue to plant more missions along the coast of Alta California. In the end, during his leadership, ten missions would be established from all the way from San Francisco, Uh, To Baja. He did encounter, though, uh, one major setback in 1775 when the mission in San Diego was attacked and destroyed. Uh, One of the priests, uh, someone he knew there, was killed. The priest was not only murdered, but disfigured, uh, particularly around his face, which some think may be related to the native people's belief that Christianity or Catholicism. is a verbal religion, that it is manifested uh, through words. And by disfiguring this priest's face, it's a statement about um, how to attack uh, these people's religion. Now, according to the record, there were problems in San Diego from the beginning. Uh, the amount of baptisms there were low. The soldiers um, uh, and this was reported from priests, uh, were said to be regularly abusing Native women. Uh, The bad behavior of soldiers caused the priests to move the mission away from the Presidio, roughly four miles away, which ironically or unironically, depending on your perspective, made the mission more vulnerable, um, which maybe is part of their uh, way of Testifying to the native people that they were uh, on their side and not on the side of the uh, soldiers. Uh, but that would lead to an end that uh, they did not expect. Uh, the attack took place at night and the soldiers who were miles away were unable to prevent the destruction of the mission. Shortly after, uh, controversy resumed about uh, what should be done with the responsible natives. Um, Predictably, Sarah, uh, who, even though he was paternalistic, saw the native people as uh, having good, desired mercy. And the military, who would have preferred to remove the violent natives and place them in exile or have them executed, um, believed that if they were left alone, uh, they would continue. But Sarah believed that any violence done to the Natives in a punitive form would only lead to more violence and rebellion. Now, um, even though Sarah had good intentions, um, violence and controversy would continue in San Diego for years later. After the debacle in San Diego, Sarah suffered a series of setbacks that effectively ended his honeymoon period of autonomy and control. A series of new checks were placed on his power from civil authorities, Uh, the transfer of direct supervision from the viceroy in Mexico City, who had previously sided with him on issues to a general in Sonora, um, to the appointment of a new governor of California who wanted to expand uh, civil settlements, altering the vision that uh, Sarah had laid out. Uh, The missionaries believed that they were setting out to protect the native people, uh, but Sarah realized Uh, after this change in policy uh, that he was believed he was being used to indoctrinate the Native people to make the uh, transition to settlements more digestible um, that they were more used to the Spanish ways and um, these settlers would be uh, easier to get along with. Um, Sarah ultimately realized that his work was being used as a a mechanism of enhancing power and expanding uh, Spanish settlements, and that ultimately contradicted uh, what his vision was uh, for California. All right, so next time uh, we're going to take a look at uh, the totality of what Sarah accomplished in terms of the missions and his legacy. We'll also spend some time looking at his final years which were filled with anxiety due to the outside meddling of uh, military and civil leaders. I will also look at his death and what happened to the world of the mission after his death. Having spent a few months with Sarah now has left me feeling that uh, Sarah, while certainly not innocent in his expansion of empire into the native world, nor innocent of an inherent uh, paternalism about the native people and the irrelevance of their language and world views. He did believe, uh, them to be humans, which might sound small, uh, but that's a far cry from what, uh, the military leaders and, um, to make it more broad, the conquistadors, uh, believe when they first came to the Americas. Um, and ultimately the truth is that we all have beliefs about the world and our beliefs, uh, necessarily cause us uh, to want to realize those truths around us. Um, These beliefs lead to action. It's just natural. Um, Today we have this enlightenment-based worldview where we believe that those truths can coexist in a peaceful pluralism. Um, But if we judge historical figures with this metric, we'll always be left angry and disappointed um, that they did not live up to what we believe is the right way to live today. Um, we'll always see them as guilty, and um, perhaps have have a distaste for trying to understand history because it's just a a record of crimes. Um, but um, I challenge you again, and this is the challenge throughout this podcast: is to see and understand people who for they are, um, and uh, judge them by their own world and their own standards, um, and sees and look for ways in which they pushed against, um, things that they viewed in their world as unjust, um, and try to understand them there and what they did with what they had. So, uh, that's my challenge for the day. Um, and I am looking forward to continuing this podcast with you guys. And I Hopefully we'll be putting out these episodes more regularly and I'm excited to continue um, and ultimately wrap up um, and move on uh, from Uniperosera next week. So uh, until next time, bye everyone.